Hello and welcome to the Ty Brown Show. We're tackling a really, really big subject today. We're talking about empathy. <clears throat> empathy is a life-changing concept. And um, I'm hoping to introduce the topic and, and really analyze the topic by sharing a funny, um, a funny story about watching my adopted son, Zeke, learn how to empathize. Uh, when we adopted him, there were a lot of things that just, it's like neurologically hadn't developed. And empathy uh, was, was one of those things. And it's been fascinating to watch his little infant and toddler brain develop this capacity. And I think there's so much that can be learned from it. Um, so we're going to share a little bit of Zeke's story today. And I hope as we're, as we're talking about this that you can ask yourself and take inventory uh, on how you're doing on empathy. Are you really uh, an empathic person? And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about some specifics of things you can do to kind of improve in that area and get a little better. And uh, let me just tell you this, this is an incredibly powerful principle. If there, if there ever was like a silver bullet to dispute resolution, which, which really there's not, but, but if there was one that was closest to a silver bullet, it would probably be mastering empathy. Um, so if you're interested in improving the quality of your interactions with others, this is a good place to focus. And we're going to take a look at some of the neuroscience. We're going to talk about stories of what it does and does not look like. And like I said before, give you some specifics on how to up your empathy game. So it's happening in three, two, and one. Podcasting from conciliators. This is the Ty Brown Show. If you're a human and you think you might have to interact with other humans at some point and you'd like that to go well, then listen up. Oh, yeah. It's time to get cozy with conflict. Let's go. Let's dive into the stats of the week. We have, and this, this was, we got quite a boost from our guests last week. We are up to 915 listeners, and that was with a short week. So I think we're doing good. The dispute resolution revolution marches on. For those who may be new to the show, uh, the purpose and mission of the show is to improve human connection and interaction. I'm hoping to give some of the skills and benefits of alternative dispute resolution to everyone, anyone who has an interest in, in learning and listening. Now... I, um, I believe that the new frontier of alternative dispute resolution is social health, and that is just health of relationships generally. Uh, traditionally, alternative dispute resolution has been kind of looked at through this very narrow prism of uh, uh, this narrow looking glass of, um, you know, disputing parties who have filed lawsuits against each other and a judge orders them to try and work it out in a settlement conference or mediation or arbitration or something. But um, the same skills that help those disputing parties reach agreements can be used in our everyday relationships. And um, so that's what, that's what we're trying to accomplish here with this podcast is to give everyone those skills so that your relationships can improve and you don't have to deal with the, the negativity and the, the really the misery of uh, these poor relationships. So that's, that's what we're after. Um, I'm Ty Brown. I, I run a company that helps organizations improve their social health using these principles. 
And this podcast is just meant for everybody in your everyday stuff. So by way of review, last week we had some guests. We had Josh and Vanessa Harup, the newlywed couple. Well, I don't know if they're like technically newlyweds. Probably been like, what, a couple years. Um, So anyway, we had them on the show talking about a disagreement they had about the timing on buying a house. And um, it was funny because Josh was the type where he was kind of closing up, didn't want to talk about it, getting really quiet. And Vanessa was going the opposite direction, kind of pushing harder and harder and harder. Like, come on, we got to, you know, got to talk this out. And the harder she pushed, the more silent Josh became until finally he set out on a cleaning spree, cleaned really the whole house. Um, And then eventually... They got out of this cycle. We call it the stop hitting yourself cycle. Uh, they got out of this cycle and they just ended up having a really good talk and, and figuring it out and making a decision together. The way they got out of the cycle is uh, they started to realize, well, well, Vanessa, she realized that she was making Josh feel bad about this and um, she empathized with him. She started feeling how he might be feeling. She started understanding where he's coming from. And um, she was able to jump out of the cycle and uh, really listen and learn and um, invite Josh to do the same. And it didn't take long at all before, uh, you know, they agreed on the path forward. So the next time you're in an argument with your spouse, take a step back and realize that you are probably making it worse, right? Like you're hitting yourself. You are probably making it worse by eliciting the behavior in your in your spouse that's that's bothering you. So take a step back, um, find your humble curiosity and try to understand your, your spouse's perspective and things will immediately get better. So that was last week. This week though, we're focusing on empathy. All right, empathy is different than sympathy. I'll show you how. Here's a story of sympathy. I was at my mom and dad's house visiting just this week my mom had um, some joints in her fingers fused from some bad arthritis and my daughter was looking at my mom's fingers my daughter is uh, she just turned seven in fact I think this happened on her birthday so there she was she was looking at my mom's fingers which you know you can still see the stitches and these incisions that were made on on two of her fingers and she came over to me and she was like yikes grandma's finger looks real bad i hope my fingers never need surgery all right so dakota felt a lot of sympathy she was like "Woo, that's bad you know but that is different than empathy and so now i'm going to tell you a story of empathy and you can see the difference it's another story of my daughter dakota so Dakota, <clears throat> she really loves animals, and um, it's probably easier for her to empathize with animals instead of humans. Um, <laughs> that's probably true of all of us, actually. So anyway, one day, my dog, my dog Jesse, chewed up her doggy bed all over the backyard. There's little pieces of foam all over. And I was, I was real mad, so I walked out there, and I was like, Jesse, did you do this, right? And she's looking all guilty, and she's sulking around, and she's, you know, being all dog guilt face on me. And so that night, when I went to put her to bed, I, um, I brought her in the house, <clears throat> and I put her leash on, and put her, we, we always set her by our front door, you know, ward off the intruders. And so I put her on the front door and I say, place. And she lays down on the hardwood floor and she's just like looking so sad at me. Like, where's my bed? And I'm like, yeah, you ate your bed. Now, you know, now sleep in it. And, um, and so anyway, she's sitting there on the hardwood floor, all sad. And uh, I go to bed. 
well then I hear I hear something going on downstairs and I'm I'm you know suspicious of what it is I, I figure it's probably one of the kids and so after a few minutes I walk down there and I find I find Dakota our little girl she has built this immaculate throne bed out of pillows and blankets and and she's just stacked them all over the entryway and the dog is just laying there like a queen and Dakota's laying next to her scratching her belly and I'm just like oh wow how about that so Dakota felt she felt so bad for this dog that you know couldn't sleep a single night on the regular floor uh, that she went down there she made this bed and took care of things and and so that is sort of the difference between empathy and sympathy. Empathy is all about connection. It's all about connection. While sympathy often drives disconnection, it causes us to actually distance ourselves from the subject of our sympathy. This was Dakota and the finger, right? She was like, "Hee, that's bad. Uh, yikes, I don't, want, I don't want to go there, right? Um, I, don't, I hope my fingers never need surgery. But then you look at you compare that with the dog and Dakota, you know, she she feels bad for the dog. And then she goes she goes there. She's like, you know what? I wouldn't want to sleep on a hard floor like this. No dog should have to sleep like this. And she 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 kind of puts herself in in the dog's shoes. Not that our dog wears shoes. This is like a terrible way to say it. But but she <laughs> she connected with the dog and um, and she really went she really went the extra mile in uh, in fixing that and she really connected it was, it was a you know it's kind of a cool bond that she shared um, with the dog over the the doggy bed so that's just an example of the difference between sympathy and empathy so now I'm going to dive into the story of Zeke this is our youngest son so he's number four and um, he was so he was born in the forest of Gambella and he was relinquished by his mother at a, around two or three months old and she relinquished him um, they were both extremely sick she was dying and um, and he was dying he was paralyzed and um, and so anyway she went through the court process there in Ethiopia and gave him up and in hopes of, of him being able to, to, you know, get some medical care and then have a family that could care for him and, and so forth. So he's, so we, we adopted him. We picked him up when he was about one and a half, not quite one and a half, but close. Um, so he spent in total a little over a year um, in an orphanage. And he was sick as a dog virtually the entire time. And um, it was a crowded space uh, with pretty well with extremely extremely limited resources, and he didn't really get you know much one-on-one uh, -on -one attention. And this first year neurologically is really important for the brain, right? That's where it's where you develop just so much cognitively. Um, in fact, I was reading a study this morning that said that a um, a one-year-old's brain is more different than a, th a three-year-old's brain than a three-year-old's brain is from a 33-year-old's brain. So your brain changes more between one-year-old and three-years-old than it does between three-years-old and 33-years-old. That's kind of fascinating, right? So anyway, because of this circumstance, uh, when we first picked him up, 
he had these little funny little quirks that took some time to work out. And one of those things that we noticed right away um, was our first night we had him. We, so we, we finally got custody of him there in Ethiopia and we're in this hotel and we have this little pack and play and we get it. It's like super duper cozy. Like this can be the, the best dang sleep of your whole life tonight. Right. And, and we're just like spoiling him rotten. And we set him down in his crib and he falls asleep you know, so peacefully just right away as cozy as could be. And, and then we lay down and, and all of a sudden we can hear this swishing sound and we're like, what is going on? There is, this is something happening over there in that crib. And so we go and we peek in and he is just rocking his head. He is rocking it back and forth and back and forth and pretty fast too, just rolling his head back and forth. So he's laying on his back and he's just kind of going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth and kind of making these little tiny little grunt, little moan sounds. And then he goes quiet right back to sleep and he's holding still again. And this goes on through the whole night intermittently. And, um, after he had done, well, after he had done it a few times, uh, I just remember my wife picking him up out of out of this pack and play, and rocking him, and um, just holding him tight, and um, and he would open his eyes and see her, and um, and she'd be rocking him. And anyway, this um, this ended up going on for for. I don't know, maybe a few weeks, maybe not quite that long, probably about that long. But we learned that what he was doing is he was self-soothing. He, um, he had learned that if he cried or whatever, he didn't get any attention. Um, no one would come to his aid. So instead of relying on others for comfort during the night, he would just self-soothe. He had, he had learned to rock himself back to sleep. And, um, and so Emily, through a lot of sleepless nights and diligence, just kind of helped him to learn that he could call out and that someone else would come and comfort him. And that, that switch took a little while to flip, but it, it did. And it was, a, it was a beautiful thing to see. So here's, here's where it gets really interesting, though. Um, he, he comes home to our house. We've got these three siblings now for him. And they're all, you know, Marshall's just, I don't know, like a year and a half older than Zeke. And then Griffin's a couple years older than Marsh. And Coda's a year and a half older than Griff. So they're all, they're all pretty close, right? There's like a four-year span between the four of them. So anyway, he's got these siblings. And they have lots of fun together, especially the boys. And they are roughhousing all the time. Just a pile of puppies wrestling and laughing and giggling, just having a great old time. And this kind of play almost always, well, not almost, it, 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 is, it is always ending in either Marshall or Griffin crying because Zeke has hurt them. And I remember one instance in particular where they were playing and Zeke was, he was to that stage where he was walking, but like not great yet. And he climbed up onto a step and Marshall was at the bottom of the step and they were all wrestling, all three of them. And Zeke jumped off right onto Marshall's head. Like that was his plan. Like I'm going to jump off this stair and I'm going to land on your head and it's going to be great fun. And so he lands on, he lands on Marshall's head and I come running over and Marshall's like wailing, like it legitimately hurt. Um, and so I, I, I remember kind of 
holding Marshall and I, I grabbed, I grabbed, I picked him up off the floor and I kind of put my hand around the back of his head and I just like pinned him right there to my chest and just kind of, um, just kind of soothed him. And uh, it didn't take long before Marsh stopped crying. And I remember as I was doing this, I was mad at Zeke. I just couldn't believe he would be, you know, so careless. I mean, so, I mean, it wasn't careless. It was purposeful. I couldn't believe he would be so purposefully mean. And uh, I remember just looking at his face and him looking at me with this confused expression, like just bewilderment about what was going on. And it hit me that he he's just like he's not registering things. And and I already knew that that this was, you know, that he wasn't registering everything because every time he would get hurt, like he would you know, he'd get a cut or a scrape or he'd fall down the stairs or whatever. He would never cry. Um, he still hardly ever cries with physical pain. He you know, he's he's a he's a big softy emotionally now. Um, you know, always wanting the love, but physically he's, he's really, really tough. And, and when we first got him, he just would never cry. And, um, he hadn't learned that, you know, that sort of response would get him comfort and attention from others. So he just kind of learned not to do it. But anyway, so he's looking at me with this confused expression as I'm holding Marshall and I wondered if he, you know, was maybe in a position to learn something. So I, I crouched down and I invited him over and I said, say sorry. And Zeke wasn't even talking at the time, so he, he didn't say anything. And I said, you know, give him a hug. And, and Zeke didn't even really know how to give hugs. But, um, but I remember him kind of just being sort of tender and gentle. And, and it was like he was experiencing for the first time, like, oh, I made this, I made this person feel bad. And, and you know what? It kind of hurts. It was like, it was like he could kind of feel something, something was sparked. Well, fast forward to the next day, I'm standing downstairs and I hear a scream from upstairs and it's Griffin and he has um, gotten his fingers shut in his bedroom door and um, they weren't broken or anything, but, but it hurt really bad. And he started screaming and yelling. And Zeke is downstairs in the kitchen with me. And he goes running up the stairs um, just with reckless abandon. I mean, this kid, he was hustling, right? And he gets to the top of those stairs and he sees Griffin laying on his back, crying, big tears, holding his hand and screaming. And, and um, I mean, really in a lot of pain. And I'm, I'm behind Zeke just kind of walking up. Um, I know I should have been hurrying more, huh? It's like, oh, what are you? What kind of father just walks up casually? Um, yeah, you know, a father who has to do this like 30 times a day, you know, the urgency, which is, it was, it was kind of lost on me. But anyway, Zeke, he was, he was running up these stairs as fast as he could. And he gets to the top and he sees Griffin. I just remember watching him pause for a second. And then he, he knelt down on his knees and he scooted over to Griffin and he just rested his little head on Griffin's chest, who was laying on his back. He just let he just rested his head right on his chest. And I realized I, I was I was moved by this. I mean I was I was I was getting emotional watching this this little baby, this one year old boy who just learned empathy, watching him come up and comfort his big brother. Uh, it was it was just powerful and moving and and it was so amazing to see this development occur right before my eyes and and I remember Griffin 
being so quickly comforted. I remember him rubbing Zeke's head and he says, he goes, he says something like, I love my fuzzy sheep. And he used to call Zeke his fuzzy sheep because Zeke's tightly coiled there, I, I guess reminded him of sheep's wool or something. Or maybe he's the black sheep. I don't, maybe, maybe it's a race thing. I don't know. I'll have to ask Griffin about that. Um, but anyway, it was, it was the most tender, most precious little moment to watch these brothers and to watch Zeke realize, you know what, I can feel something. I, I can, I, you know, this didn't happen to me, but I can still feel something. And, and I'm going to connect. I'm going to, I'm going to go there. I'm going to, I know it's painful and it's unpleasant, but I'm going to go there and, um, and I'm going to be there with my brother and, and, and go through this with him. It was, it was, anyway, that's the story. And it was amazing. Now, um, fast forward now a couple of weeks and he's getting better and better and better at this. He's empathizing with everyone and there's lots of bumps and bruises in our house. And so, you know, he gets lots of practice. Now, one Sunday, he and I go to church, pretty much everyone in the house was sick. And so it's just him and me and maybe one of the other kids. And we're sitting there and someone sitting right behind us is getting kind of emotional at church, kind of moved by something they heard um, that really resonated with them. And um, I could kind of hear her sniffling behind us. And Zeke, who is standing kind of in the aisle, just being a menace, he walked over to this woman. And uh, and although he's a little bit shy by nature, uh, he just put his hand on her knee and um, and just looked at her with these eyes. And for those of you who know Zeke, he has these eyes that are just penetrating and uh, and intense and just beautiful. So anyway, it was so neat. She started laughing and and um, and was really touched by this little show of affection, this little show of empathy from this boy who just learned who just learned the principle. So I have a feeling there might be. you know, there might be still more for Zeke to learn on this. And it's still sort of like a forced skill. Like, I'm not sure it like it doesn't always come off naturally, but you can tell he's making a purposeful effort at comforting people. And I I will say this, he still inflicts the most pain in the house. um, For sure, the kid is a bruiser. Um, His play is just out of control. But he is better at saying sorry than any of our other kids. Um, at this point. So anyway, that's, that's, that's Zeke for you. The neuroscience of empathy. That's what I want to spend just a second talking about now. The neuroscience of empathy is fascinating. Turns out that our brains are hardwired towards empathy. Uh, we're made for this. Uh, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, all my stories of my, of my kids. I, so this is a story I was watching a movie and um, I looked over at my daughter, Dakota, and she's wiping tears out of her eyes. And I said, are you okay? And she says, I don't like this movie. It makes my eyes all wet. And uh, she was, so she was, you know, this, this concept of we can watch someone else experience something, even in a movie, and it still resonates with it. It still causes us to feel. Um, there is a certain connection that allows us to still feel those same emotions that these characters in a production feel. And that's what makes entertainment entertaining, right? It's because you feel something. And um, so our, anyway, our brains are hardwired for this. Um, I looked up some statistics this morning that, uh, that I just found to be really fascinating about the power of the human brain. So experts estimate that we have 
approximately, and I'm guessing this is like real approximate, um, not real precise. Um, we have approximately 100 billion neurons in the human brain, each neuron with up to 10,000 connections. So the number of really, we'll just say the number of permutations or combinations of brain activity actually exceeds the number of elementary particles in the universe. Oh my gosh, this little, I don't know, what does a brain weigh, like four pounds, I'm guessing? I don't know. This little four pound hunk of flesh has more connections and permutations than the elementary particles of the universe. Man, fascinating, right? Okay, so these neurons are something special and not all neurons are the same. There are, um, and recent studies have shown, have discovered uh, mirror neurons, which, which are kind of the empathy neurons. And these mirror neurons are, are kind of cool. They help us to copy others, right? This is what makes us different from like a lot of the animals, right? We, um, you know, use, you know, caveman sees other cavemen build fire and he's like, hey, I'm going to use that same tool and that same technique and also build fire. And, um, you know, so instead of kind of the Darwinian evolution of hundreds of thousands of years to develop the right kind of coat to survive in this climate, now you've got people who can um, learn a skill, learn um, a trick, learn uh, some sort of an innovation, and then copy it. And it spreads horizontally immediately instead of, you know, taking, uh, you know, forever to adapt. So anyway, the, these these mirror neurons help us to imitate. Now, it's even cooler than that. They can, these mirror neurons, they fire when you just watch someone else do some action. And this is what makes it possible to imitate is they're firing even just by watching. It's, it's almost as if you are vicariously experiencing something. This is when you're like reading ab about uh, a skill. This is what allows you to visualize yourself doing it. Um, so anyway, these even fire, get this, this is fascinating. They even fire sometimes when you just watch someone else being touched, meaning your brain, these neurons send this signal. So picture, you know, I'm right now I'm, I'm touching the top of my hand in the middle of my palm on the top of my hand. Uh, I guess that's not my palm. It's the back of my hand. All right. Now, even though you're just hearing this, your brain may be sending the signal that you are being touched on the top of your hand. Well, how come, how come then you don't feel that, right? If your brain is sending the message that you're being touched, how come you don't feel that? Well, it's because these neurons, uh, well, well, you have skin receptors that send the message, the feedback back to your brain that say, nope, you're not actually being touched. I'm vetoing that. <laughs> I'm vetoing this message that these neurons are sending. You're not actually being touched because your skin knows that. But these scientists have found that by anesthetizing the skin, making it all numb, you can cancel out these skin receptors. And then as you watch someone be touched on the back of their hand, where you don't have the skin receptors to veto the signal, you can actually feel the touch just by watching someone else be touched. That's, a, that's fascinating, right? These neurons connect us to others. The only thing separating us is our skin. <laughs> and they even, they even tested this with people that have like missing limbs, um, like, you know, phantom pain in your hand. And they would, um, 
they would have these people sit in a room and they would watch someone else have their hand massaged um, and, and worked out, and it would relieve the pain in the phantom hand. Uh, fascinating, right? These neurons is so cool. Um, this helps us answer the question of, you know, how do we empathize with someone who's experiencing something that we've never been through? Well, our brains are designed to allow us to experience what others are feeling, even if we are not experiencing it or, or have never experienced the same thing. Um, our brains are hardwired for this. It's, it's amazing. And, and actually, um, the science is backed up by scripture. Um, if, if, you know, I, 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 love, uh, I love finding little uh, nuggets of truth in scripture verses. And some of you, you know, I actually, I wasn't going to say, I wasn't going to go into this, but heck, mine as well. Um, so in the Bible, there is a, um, there's just a couple of verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, um, verses 3 through 5. This is kind of fascinating, all right? And this kind of backs up the science of being able to feel what others are experiencing. So it says, um, okay, blessed be God, even the Father of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's kind of a cool title right? Who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Okay, so this verse is telling us that God's given us kind of this uh, endowed humanity with this amazing gift that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. And it's by using this kind of special comfort power that God has built into us. Um, you see, we have this verse where it says, the sufferings of Christ abound in us. Now, um, what, what that's referring to, you know, Christians believe that Jesus Christ suffered all the pains and afflictions of all people, of all of humanity. That He felt that during his atoning sacrifice. And so when it says that his sufferings abound in us, it's kind of telling us, although we may not have personally experienced everything else that the rest of the world has experienced, we have this power through Christ's sufferings, because he has felt it all. We have this power then to be able to comfort those who may be in any trouble. Um, so we can kind of access this power of feeling what others, what others feel, even though we haven't been there. Our brains are hardwired, hardwired for it, and it's kind of this special gift from God. Um, I, I think that's a fascinating parallel between science and, and Scripture here. Okay, so... Um, Let's ask this question. So why does empathy really matter in the dispute resolution world? Well, um, being empathic helps us to say things better. Um, it kind of gives us an understanding of how um, what we say makes others feel. And we all know people who struggle socially. And a lot of the reason they struggle socially is because they're not very good at understanding how people will feel when they hear, or, or I guess when, they're, when they say things, they, they're bad at visualizing how that will make people feel. Socially intelligent people, um, emotionally intelligent people are really good at knowing um, how others will feel based on what is said. So as an example of this, uh, I have this secretary uh, named Gina, who I probably mentioned on here before. Gina's great. Um, 
and I, I anyway, she gets in the office before I do most most every day, and I'd come in, and she would have all of these things that need my attention, that need work. And um, after kind of going through this for a few days, um, she started realizing, like, wow, I think I think this might kind of overwhelm. I think he might be a little overwhelmed <laughs> when he walks in, and the first thing, you know, ten steps into the door, it's wait, hold on. I've got things, I've got things you need to hear right away. Um, and she probably, I think she realized she's kind of emotionally intelligent enough to realize, you know what, that might make him feel overwhelmed. It might make him feel uh, frustrated to start his day. So, so one day she says, Hey, I've got a bunch of things, but, um, do you want to just kind of get settled in and, and set for the day? And then, uh, just let me know when you're ready and I'll come in and go over this stuff with you. And when she said that to me, I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds great. That sounds really nice. Um, you know, she kind of read my mind and it was really a power of empathy. She was able to put herself in my shoes and say, okay, let's, let's find a way to make this feel a little better. So that was a really good example of, um, you know, understanding how what we say makes others feel. Um, okay, so if you can, if you can be mindful of this and and realize what kind of feelings you're eliciting by your speech, you will have dramatically fewer disputes and contention in your life um, just by increasing your awareness of how others will feel about what you're saying to them. And now that's not, I mean, the truth is, is um, you, you still can't try to manipulate how others feel about what you say. You don't want to do that. You just want to be aware of it. And if you're aware of it, it will make you a lot more tactful and a lot easier to understand. And uh, it's really a conflict prevention practice. It's kind of a way to, uh, it's a stop hitting yourself skill. All right. So empathy really, empathy matters in dispute resolution because empathy really drives connection. It's what really, really brings you together with other people. Think of the Josh and Vanessa story. This is when, you know, they kind of saw this thing different and they were kind of in different camps about when to buy a home. And it was kind of tense and, and Josh didn't want to talk about it. And Vanessa was, you know, wanting to push it. And, and, but finally they had this moment of empathy where they just really came together right? There's this amazing connection. And once you can achieve that, once you can feel that resolution becomes really easy. It's when you're thinking of only yourself that resolution is very hard. So, um, empathy drives connection, which helps facilitate resolution of things. It also unlocks the gate to a learning conversation. It's really hard to be curious about how someone thinks or feels or believes on a certain issue. If you can't try to imagine how they think, feel, and believe. Um, it, it's so huge. This is so huge. I, I just, I mean, people just want to be understood. They don't necessarily need you to agree with them on anything. And, and that's, that's where people get, that's where people get so messed up. Uh, I, oh man, you can tell I, this is, this is like one of those issues that just gets me going because I see people all the time who are arguing, they are disagreeing and their disagreement is, I mean, it's so, it's so unnecessary because they're trying to convince each other of something. Um, but actually they don't need to agree with each other to be reconciled. 
And, and so often we feel like there's this prerequisite that we have to be, we have to have a full consensus. We have to have a full agreement in order to have this resolution. But that's not at all true. As long as you understand each other, generally that satisfies the need. As long as each party feels understood and they are like, okay, you totally see my points and I totally see your points. And even despite seeing each other's points clearly, we have come to different conclusions. That's still a, a place of peace. That's still a place of, of being reconciled. Um, you don't have to have perfect consensus on things. And, um, but anyway, I just, empathy is what helps people to understand each other. And so if you're in a relationship that's really struggling, if you have a connection that's, that's really tense, um, ask yourself, is it because we're, you know, I'm requiring that there be a, a, a total consensus or total agreement on some important issue? Because if, if you are thinking that way, my advice to you is stop thinking that way because you can probably get that relationship back on track without even having an agreement just by f fully acknowledging, hey, we understand each other and we just conclude differently. Um, you can still be friends with those people. You can still talk with them easily and get along well. You can have a, a really good, strong social health in that relationship without having total agreement on every, on, on every you know, specific thing. I am not sure if that makes a lot of sense. I, I hope it does because in my mind and in my heart, I, I can't help but feel like this is so important. And I hope that you'll take that challenge and, and say, you know what, I am going to try to connect with this person. I'm going to try and empathize. If you can do that, you don't have to agree with them. But if you do that, you can at least understand them. And that solves a lot of problems. Okay. So, you know, it's time to change your life. Be more empathic. Um, but how? How do you do it? Well, here's just a few little steps, and I'm not going to go into like a ton of detail on these. I'm just going to offer them because they're they're really pretty self-explanatory, and they kind of dovetail with things we've talked about in the past. So, how to be more empathic? Uh, number one, abandon judgment and blame. Just stop. Just stop. Abandon judgment and blame, and go into that interaction, that conversation with curiosity. Okay. So that's step two: is is to just be curious. Step three, and, and this is this is like empathy 101. It's not going to surprise anyone, but it's try and recognize the emotion in others. Try to recognize the emotion in others. And then step four is to communicate to them that you recognize their emotion. Um, so here's the shortcut. If you don't want to remember all the steps, here's the shortcut. Say to yourself, you know what? I'm, I'm, there's this person, okay? Um, to bridge this gap, to bring us together, I am going to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling that they have. You have this amazing power to do this, to connect with something in yourself that knows that feeling of someone else. And you can feel, you can feel this connection to them, even if you haven't experienced what they're experiencing. Um, you don't have to go through what they're going through to still connect and know the feeling that they have because of this superpower, this God-given amazing brain we have that allows us to experience things vicariously. Um, so that there it is. Use this power. 
experience things with others. Go there with them. Don't let them be alone. And you'll find that this builds this builds connection and it drives resolution of, of problems and issues that you may experience from time to time. All right, everybody, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. Uh, please go ahead and subscribe, uh, rate the show, review it, uh, share it with the people you know. And thank you for continuing your efforts in the dispute resolution revolution. That's all.